listening to The Reese Show. On this show, we're trying to clarify what a good future looks like. I know we're all a bit sad about late-stage capitalism, and we want to transition to something, but we don't really know what's next. So, on the show, we interview experts about what is emerging, this beautiful future vision that we can all lean into. I hope it gives you a sense of purpose and clarity about the future. If you like the show, you know, feel free to do something about it. <laughs> you can leave us a five-star review. You can tell your friends. You can name your first child Reese. Whatever makes you happy. And if you really dig it, we have an online school called Root, where we help folks understand these root-level systems to find our route forward. We have cohorts of world-class systems thinkers that run every couple of months. So if you're interested in that, check us out at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. Thanks. Today I chat with Martha Minow, who's a law professor at Harvard and just a super sharp woman. And we chat about her book, How Does or When Should Law Forgive, which is a great book that gives you frameworks for understanding forgiveness, which is a crucial issue that we have in today's society. And we also chat about tech ethics at the end and her perspective towards that and especially platform moderation and things of that variety. So enjoy today's episode with Martha. Goodbye. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm excited to interview Martha Minow. Martha, Martha is a legal scholar and the 300th anniversary university professor at Harvard University. She has served as the dean of Harvard Law School between 2009 and 2017, and she's been called one of the world's leading human rights scholars and has written nearly 20 books about those subjects and many others. And during the 2008 presidential campaign, this is a fun little uh, tidbit, Obama said, when I was at Harvard Law School, I had a teacher who changed my life, Martha Minow. Martha, thanks for being on the show and welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Excited to dive in. Uh, so first, I guess, one interesting thing here is, I mean, for me, when I first got to MIT, when I was working there in 2018, I remember going to a talk at Berkman Klein and um, with you and Yokai Binkler and some other folks chatting about tech ethics and society. And it was just like, you exuded these really good law professor vibes, synthesizing and curating information in a very... Um, clear and cogent way. So excited to kind of dive into some of those topics today. I think first, I just want to hear though, for you and your background, like how did you become a do-gooder and why have you focused a lot of your um, lawyerly talents on stuff like human rights? Gosh, uh, it's a overdetermined. Uh, I'm a child of the 60s. I grew up during the civil rights movement and the women's movement and later the environmental movement. I have parents who very much care about the public good and have devoted their lives to uh, service and community service and national uh, public service. Um, and luckily, they're still with us. They're in their 90s and very inspirational. Uh -huh. um, and uh, just at coming of age when I did uh, and working uh, initially in local communities uh, and finding issues that connect across the world, I got hooked. That's funny. So you were uh, overdetermined, as you said, it was just uh, since birth, kind of, probably even your genes. You have, if there's a human rights gene or a do-gooder gene, you probably have it. 
<laughs> probably right. That's funny. Um, well, so let's kind of dive into one of those, um, you know, one of these do-gooder, uh, you know, uh, p- pillars that you have, which is about forgiveness. And you wrote um, this great book recently called When Should Law Forgive? And, you know, these days, as we were kind of chatting about over email, there's a lot of you know, either forgiveness or blaming opportunities these days with, you know, student debt or rent forgiveness or forgiving the other side, you know, maybe presidential pardons. Um, How, I guess, you know, to talk about that book um, and just how you think about forgiveness, because you kind of give myself and our listeners kind of an overview for how we should think about forgiveness. Well, thanks. And thanks for the chance to talk about it. By forgiveness, I mean a conscious or deliberate decision to let go of a grievance that's justified against a person or group or institution that has committed a wrong or a harm. And so there are several elements here that are important. One is that there is a wrong. Second, that there's rightful grounds for a grievance. And the third is to deliberately let go. And the book I just wrote is really putting that question to the legal system itself. When should the legal system, when should prosecutors, courts, agencies let go of existing grounds for grievance? Um, We live actually in a time of great grievance, great resentments in all kinds of directions. We live in the United States, in the nation that incarcerates more people per per population than any other society in the history of the planet. Uh, You mentioned debt. We have massive consumer debt. And right now, in the face of the pandemic, we have people who are facing uh, absolutely insurmountable Uh, debt, not just personal debt, but also business debt. Um, And there's a real question about what will the law do? What will the law punish? What will it forgive? Yeah. And so, as you note there, there's kind of, you have to have the actual harm being done in order for the forgiveness to happen. And so do you think about, you know, we think about these you know, forgiving happening generally in this personal way within society where it's like, oh, I forgive you for, um, you know, being mean to me or whatever. Uh, but how, when you think about the law forgiving, could you give some examples of just, you know, how the law can actually forgive, like what that looks like? Well, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. Our Constitution actually includes author- authority for Congress to create a bankruptcy law. And this is uh, one of the major ways to forgive, let go of debt, whether it's personal debt or business debt. And the Constitution includes that provision for many reasons, but I think one is that one of its authors was Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson, during his lifetime, experienced considerable debt and really knew firsthand how destructive it could be. Because he was Thomas Jefferson, he also connected it to a kind of political theory with a view that one generation should not burden the next with a debt. So the United States really from the early days has had pretty robust opportunities for people to start over and to start over in their personal lives or in their business lives. And interestingly, as people who have studied the innovative culture in the United States, the the current and past practices of entrepreneurship, identify this bankruptcy law, this tradition, as a big part of it. 
But in addition, the law includes opportunities for pardons. You mentioned that before. The president is given a, a power to pardon, so are governors. Um, there are also uh, related opportunities to set aside or commute a sentence, uh, to lift the collateral consequences of criminal punishment, to expunge records, that is to seal the records, make it not public, uh, or to have a ban the box uh, legislation that says that employers cannot ask whether someone has a criminal conviction before they offer the person a job. Um, there are amnesties that are possible. You know, we experience amnesties from the library when they let go <laughs> of a fine when our book is late. Uh, we've had the use of amnesties in this country after the Vietnam War, when there were Vietnam protesters, uh, amnesty was offered across the board. Um, so those are some of the uh, very specific authorizations for forgiveness in the legal system, but there are others uh, that may be less obvious, like just simply a decision by, by a government official that's given discretion not to punish, not to pursue. A police officer can say, well, this time we'll let you go. A prosecutor can say, actually, we're not going to prosecute. So there, there are many, many places where forgiveness is possible. Yeah, that's cool. I think it's interesting that it was, you know, baked into our constitution from the start, which is great. Do you think that there's, I mean, that last one of, you know, the ability for individual officials to give, you know, to, to kind of forgive at a, like on a one-off. Um, in your book, you chat about, you know, these incentives and kind of norms for either punishment or forgiveness. And when I was reading that, um, I thought of, there's so many ones for like incentives for punishment where you say, oh, okay, there's going to be mandatory minimums or the three strike rule or things like that. But are there some examples either current in current times or in the past of, you know, norms or, you know, incentives within governments for them to kind of be more lenient with their uh, punishment? Well, that's, I think they're not enough. Um, mm -hmm. the, the sentencing guidelines, uh, the federal uh, criminal guidelines actually um, are now much attributed to the mass incarceration because uh, while they were meant to try to restrict the discretion and frankly the discrepancies across judges, they did so with a compromise politically and the compromise was to increase the punishment for many, many crimes. Um, we could modify uh, those guidelines and change what uh, the recommended sentence is. That would be uh, helpful. Um, there are incentives that are somewhat more um, uh, in, informal. So, for example, some of the states that have really done uh, innovative work in reducing incarceration have done so in the face of evidence about how expensive it is to incarcerate people uh, without much of a return. So it's not that there's a legal reason, but there's an economic reason. Uh, and the, the interesting partnerships of people who care about fiscal prudence and people who maybe have a religious reason for forgiveness has led to innovative reforms in places like Texas. Mm, that's interesting. I think that there's the economic one is kind of funny where it's like <laughs> the reason why we will incarcerate less folks is because it's soup too expensive. Um, and that's both good, but also um, it would be nice if, you know, the norms were such that 
you know, we were more, um, yeah, that we were more lenient with folks in general. I think that this kind of leads me to an interesting question here that you brought up in your book, which is that, you know, I think your book highlights a lot of these balances, you know, and one of them is in the main one is something like accountability versus forgiveness. It's like, oh, if I keep on stealing your chair and then I keep stealing and keep stealing, but you keep on granting me amnesty because you're so nice, I don't have any, you know, there's the moral hazard there or whatever. There's also this like, you know, as you know, there the consistency versus flexibility where it's like, ah, we can be consistent with these mandatory minimums, but we might want some more flexibility. And also we might want a law the law to have more flexibility within it versus you know the law to be this like um, stringent thing that we know is going to be objective and true and then kind of this final one that you chat about in your book is attributing blame to an individual versus the context it's like as you chatted about at the beginning you were kind of over indexed on uh, being a do-gooder with your parents and growing up in the civil rights movement and things like that um, and so how much can we attribute uh, that to you versus to the context and similarly with someone who's um, committed a crime it's like how much is it their fault versus you know their, their context or their childhood and things like that so how do you think I don't want to dive too much into any of those specific ones but I want to kind of ask the meta question here which is how do you Martha think about these kind of balances or tensions how do you work through those intellectually as a lawyer or just as, as yourself well, the, uh, legal systems from uh, time immemorial have have struggled with that issue. There's not going to be a simple formula, but it's striking to me that major civilizations throughout human history have periodically had a reset, uh, it, it, not just one-off, not just occasional uses of forgiveness, but across the board. Uh, so the Jewish and Christian tradition of the Jubilee, for example, uh, represents a, a, a kind of call periodically just, okay, forgive debts, let prisoners out. Hammurabi's code had a similar feature. Uh, ancient Greece did the same. And we've seen something similar in the forgiving of uh, developing countries' debt periodically. Um, so I, I, what interests me in part is not just this perpetual tension between fair application, an objective application of neutral principles, but also periodically standing back and saying, has the system as a whole gotten out of whack? It's interesting to me that actually large mammals, uh, according to the people who study them, have rituals of forgiveness as well. So it seems to be a, a, a resource for living beings to find a way to live together. That's hilarious and kind of awesome. You know, like, is it is it that, you know, elephants forgive each other or something? Or do you know the, the little bit more detail there? Well, it's, it's really large apes. Uh, oh. And particularly when there are the alpha uh, players that are engaged in combat and struggle, there's then rituals of kind of uh, cons consolation. Uh, it's remarkable. And it's clearly a way to de-escalate violence. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, I think, but let me, let me try to ask, and I, and I like your answer there, which is that, hey, no matter what, we're going to have these balances and tensions in society, and that a helpful thing to do is to occasionally just reset things and say, hey, let's have this jubilee. I, the question that I was trying to ask there was a little bit more kind of abstract, which is to say, whether it's in the realm of forgiveness, or whether it's in other realms of, of tech ethics, or free speech, or anything, as you come to when you're researching a topic, and you're like, oh, here's a tension between these two kind of abstract concepts or these two like goods that we want to have in society. How do you kind of work through those tensions in your mind? Does that question make sense? Sure, it does. And uh, an easy 
but insufficient answers to talk about context. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we do in law is we take rules and we apply them to a new context. But precisely because it's new, there won't be 100% fit between the new context and the old one. So then we need to articulate, well, is this difference one that should make a difference? You know, Aristotle put uh, a norm that is still powerful today, which is one kind of justice, one kind of rule and justice is to treat like cases alike. The question then is what's alike? And when is a difference sufficient for making a difference in the treatment? And so the way that I think about it abstractly is to force the articulation of what are those differences and then to identify, well, should that difference make a difference under, uh, in light of what the underlying norms are uh, and what the consequences are? So those consequences of the moral hazard, whether this will lead to too many copycats or the consequence of inconsistency Will it lead to uh, too much bias and the personal views of the judge? I love the cartoon that shows the man uh, judge with a big uh, bushy uh, mustache and a big nose looking down at a defendant with the identical mustache and nose and saying, obviously not guilty. We, we have to be worried about that kind of preferring people like yourself. Um, that's a consequence to guard against. Um, and uh, the other consequences uh, that you pointed to that I've also struggled with is, well, when is it wrong to be blaming an individual as opposed to the larger circumstances or other actors? So take, take student debt. Right now in this country, we have you know, very serious problems of student debt. Uh, one of the issues is the bankruptcy law was amended in 1998 to exclude student loans from bankruptcy, even though that device is available for all other kinds of debt. Um, and that was a political judgment and I think it should be revisited. But even further, right now we have unfortunately many, many individuals who have debt because they enrolled in for-profit schools that then went belly up. And the schools were able to declare bankruptcy, but not the students. There's a context where looking out at the, uh, zooming back, looking beyond the individual who's a debtor and seeing what's the circumstance may lead us even to something beyond forgiveness, to a defense saying there should be a defense against enforcing this debt if there was misrepresentation or misconduct by the lender. Yeah, I love that. I think, so, you know, popping back off the stack and going to the first thing you said, which is that I really like the, you know, does the difference make a difference? And something that's so beautiful about law is that you have these laws and you're just rigorously applying them to all these new contexts. And it's funny because you'd think, oh, something written in the 1700s or whatever wouldn't be applicable to the internet today or whatever, but you actually can apply these to our modern context. And so asking that question, when does the difference make a difference and when should we treat like alike? And then just actually looking through the differences and saying, okay, is this, um, what are the differences here? So I, I like that as kind of a meta framework there. And then your other point about you know, zooming out to the context and thinking about something like student debt today. Well, A, I think in your book, you kind of, there are just a variety of things that just seem dumb. You know, like the 1998 student loan thing, you know, to exempt them um, from bankruptcy while keeping other things. It's like, what? That's just, that shouldn't be the case. And so I think that there's, 
um, as you say, you can go even further than forgiveness and say, hey, we don't actually want to forgive. If, if you're some um, person who was advertised by DeVry or whatever to go into their course, um, paid a bunch of money, DeVry goes bankrupt, uh, they are all fine, but then you're in a ton of bankruptcy yourself, we don't just forgive that person. We say, no, no, that's not even your fault. Um, and so I think that's a very powerful perspective there. Do you think well, it goes back to that definition of forgiveness. It's not even appropriate to talk about forgiveness if there wasn't a wrong in the first place. And if the student who is not paying the debt um, actually is not paying it because they didn't get an education. Um, and the school went bankrupt, then I think there's not something to forgive. There's something to adjust. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. So do you think, I mean, thinking about another specific uh, example here, like the Trump pardons today, and I don't know that much about them. I know I've heard random things about him, maybe like pre-pardoning people. And I, um, but can you talk about like how we should think about presidential pardons in general, or if there's anything specific as well about the Trump pardons? Absolutely. Well, the pardon power in the U.S. Constitution was borrowed from the tradition of royalty in England, which was an absolute power, like the absolute power of kings that over time, of course, has been restricted. In the U.S. Constitution, there are really only two restrictions on the presidential pardon power. One, it's only available for federal crimes. So the president cannot forgive charges brought by a state or local government. It's a different sovereign. And the second is explicit in the Constitution. It says, except in cases of impeachment. Other than that, it's a pretty untethered power, and it's been justified as a way to check the powers of the legislature or the powers of the courts. Um, most presidents, not the current one, have recognized that there could be abuses and created reliance on processes so it's not just one person making the decision. Uh, typically, uh, it's a Department of Justice or a separate pardon office that tries to go through cases and make sure there's some kind of horizontal equity treating like cases alike. There have been abuses. There have been abuses by others. President Clinton uh, was uh, uh, the last couple of days in office, uh, granted pardons to people who had given him campaign contributions, for example. President Trump, though, I think is quite extreme uh, in clearly delighting not only in the actual pardons that he's given, but in dangling the possibility of a pardon before people wh who, for whom he's really seeking some kind of loyalty, whether it's in the course of the impeachment inquiry, it's getting pretty close to that forbidden use of the pardon power, um, or otherwise. Uh, and he's currently clearly talking with his advisors about pardoning his children or pardoning his lawyer or pardoning himself. There's nothing in the Constitution that says he cannot pardon himself, but it flies in the face of the very idea of a pardon that it's granted. It's granted by somebody. It applies to someone else. And even more profoundly, it really interferes with the idea longstanding that no one should be the judge in his or her own case. That to be judged is to be judged by others because of the dangers of self-dealing. I remain deeply offended by the very first pardon that President Trump gave, which was to a man named Arpaio, 
who is the sheriff, was the sheriff in uh, Arizona in a particular county, who was charged and convicted of violating civil rights laws in his use of uh, punishment in uh, inhumane treatment and in racial and ethnic bias. And then he was held in contempt by a judge for failing to comply with the court's orders. And it's that contempt that he was pardoned for. Later, finding that to accept a pardon means that he had to acknowledge he was guilty, Arpeo sought to uh, eliminate uh, the contempt altogether. And the judge who had issued it said, you may have been pardoned, but you can't undo history. You were found in violation and that remains on the books. Um, yeah, pretty horrible. Yeah, it um, it makes me think, I mean, so I do like the idea of the presidential pardon as a check on power, as you noted, and it's kind of like a, a weird version of a veto. It's like, no, I veto this, um, you know, this ruling from the past. And That's as right. you know, as in, in, as you say, there's like the idea of the kind of process there of like a pardon office um, where you go through in the Department of Justice, you check in with them beforehand and stuff. And I know that like for Trump's most recent one, uh, Flynn or what have you, that he didn't even um, uh, go through the tour. It was, a, it was a surprise to the Department of Justice instead of like working through a process with them and treating, treating like cases alike. So I think that there's, yeah, I like the idea of a presidential pardon office and it is sad that, um, and not surprising that Trump is <laughs> doing what he is just is flying by the seat of his pants and doing whatever. Um, yeah, so that's kind of sad. The tweet of the day, the tweet of the day. But you know, it's interesting. The United States Constitution is the longest uh, in existence, continually operating national constitution, and more recent constitutions for democracies that include pardon powers are more likely to distribute it across either a commission that has multiple people involved or a case of South Africa to provide judicial review that there can be a check on the use of the pardon power. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes more sense uh, instead of just with norms. Um, so one thing I also wanna chat, one final question about forgiveness for you, Martha, is you know, you've had some real life experience uh, in you know, forgiving settings, um, for example, you know, you launched the Imagine Coexistence, um, you know, project, which is with the UN and with refugees to promote peaceful development in post-conflict societies. You've also, you also were on the Kosovo Commission um, after that, uh, you know, ethnic conflict there. What have you kind of learned from those in-person experiences about uh, forgiveness in kind of the real world? Well, it's a, it's a tall order um, to forgive personally. Um, and one reason I've been drawn to the issue of forgiveness for institutions is to really ask what's the context that a society can create that can allow individuals and groups to move on after terrible conflicts. Uh, in Kosovo is a great example um, where in fact, uh, people who had married across ethnic lines during the course of the conflicts uh, became uh, unable to cooperate or even live peaceably together. Um, it, what, what we found in the UN High Commissioner for Refugee work was that in some cases, actually creating some kind of a joint effort, like create a women's center or create a, 
uh, economic opportunity, like a threshing uh, facility, um, might allow groups that had been in conflict with each other to put it aside and focus on the future. Um, so it may or may not be forgiveness, but it is coexistence, and that's a really good start. Yeah, that's interesting. I think, as you note, there's kind of this balance, and in your book, you note the, you know, that the law can do, and, and institutions can create structures that either encourage forgiveness or um, don't encourage forgiveness. And something like, um, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa is an example of this, where for some folks it did a good job at like, you know, creating forgiveness. And for other folks, they felt like they could do less impersonal forgiveness because they felt like the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission had gone like too far. And so I think that, you know, your note here about, you know, this co-created kind of, you know, future facing project to work on as a way to kind of work through forgiveness. Can you imagine just applying that to maybe our current (laughs) <laughs> you know, a polarized environment into the United States and and how we think about the other side here. Is there, you know, do you have any ideas about, you know, things that we could do perhaps in the United States or, or elsewhere for around these kinds of co-created future-facing projects? You know, I certainly have been thinking a lot about that. Um, I think that uh, getting a firmer understanding of what is the issue that we're dealing with is necessary before we can talk about any uh, responses. Uh, one, one issue, it seems to me, is the kind of hateful exchanges that social media has allowed. And this may be in both directions, but it uh, has been, in my view, more often people who are fans of President Trump against others. It's even led to uh, you know, people going out in real life and surrounding the homes of uh, individuals like uh, voting rights, uh, voting officials and threatening them. Um, I, I think that that's a kind of harm that uh, is very dangerous. Um, and there, we're not ready for forgiveness yet. We haven't even acknowledged that there's a harm going on. I think that uh, it's fascinating to me to see that YouTube today has decided to be far more um, uh, editorial and far more restrictive, at least when it comes to misinformation about the election and about COVID. Um, That's been true now for several of the major platforms, Facebook um, and and, uh, Twitter have been much more uh, restrictive uh, because they see there have been some very terrible um, and escalating Uh, kinds of hateful expressions. I'm very interested in the possibilities of creating settings where people can actually see people face to face. Uh, When we get back to doing that in particular, uh, Deb Roy and his efforts are very interesting at MIT, um, finding ways that libraries and other community institutions can convene people to tell their stories and to hear from one another. The way before we can talk about forgiveness, we need to just listen to each other and hear what the issues are. When it comes to wrongdoing by people in the current uh, administration in Washington, um, there are potential allegations of corruption, self-dealing, um, certainly, in my view, violations of human rights, the separation of parents and children uh, at the border. Um, we need to let the legal system work its way through uh, and identify what those harms are and uh, whether there will be charges be- long before we get to something like forgiveness. Yeah, I like that. I think that as as kind of 
bullish it seems as your book is on forgiveness and as bullish as perhaps I am also on forgiveness. It's like you can't forgive before you acknowledge and then accept. And then eventually, you know, over time you might be able to forgive. And it, and it reminds me back to the, you know, the truth and reconciliation commission after in post-apartheid uh, South Africa, where it's like, it wasn't just the reconciliation commission, you know, it's like the truth had to come out as well. And people had to hear and, and listen and, and, and see that. And so, I think that's a very powerful uh, perspective. Do you think that, you know, when we think about the internet, and this is kind of transitioning more into, you know, your work within technology and society, do you think that the internet, you know, are, are you, what kind of, you know, are there places, um, you know, how, how do you think the internet could be more, uh, could be structured to create places, better places for forgiveness? Is that possible? Well, the, the internet, of course, is a very, very vast space. I think that there are uh, several uh, aspects to that question. One is the architecture of social media um, and uh, really looking at what the architecture is and what the norm setting possibilities are. Um, so, you know, we, we probably uh, all know the story of the really tragic experiment in an AI uh, uh, self-learning uh, uh, effort to create a an avatar that would interact with people on social media and it had to be shut down in one day because of what it had learned that was so hateful. But I do know websites where there are cultivations of supportive communities where artists, for example, give each other supportive critiques. Um, there are ways in which social media has been a lifesaver for people who face uh, mental illness challenges or um, working through their sexual and gender identity issues. Um, uh, my family was early adopters back in the day of Prodigy, which was an early form of social media. Um, and uh, one of my uh, family members had a severe disability and through that, he was able to connect with people who had that uh, challenge and others, and that was very meaningful. So the question is, what are the surrounding contexts that allow for supportive conversations um, rather than trolling, rather than hatefulness? I mean, you can't be a woman on a social media platform without being uh, harassed, and there's something wrong about that. But another feature of the internet, of course, is just digital commerce and uh, digital problem solving. There's an explosion right now of experiments in the use of digital tools in dispute resolution, online dispute resolution. eBay, for example, has algorithmically moderated um, uh, disputes, which uh, people who use them report much higher levels of satisfaction than the, the people report of the public dispute resolution system. So they're, they're promising um, opportunities. Yeah, that's interesting. I think, as you note, it is a very large question. Um, and I think that you're honing in, I mean, the, the architecture of social media, and especially the, there's kind of the code-based piece for what does the code um, incentivize you to do. And then there's also the norms. And I think that an interesting one here is Mastodon, who on their main website, because Mastodon can be, you know, it's a permissionless peer-to-peer -peer protocol, and it can be used for a bunch of random bad things if it wanted to be, especially because it's like more permissionless than traditional platforms. Um, but on their website, they try to kind of nudge people 
towards more positive uses. And they do that by giving their like introduction video is about LGBTQ plus folks and how they um, find each other and find community on the internet. So instead of having their intro video be some kind of neo-Nazi thing, they say they're kind of nudging people's uses of the platform with their kind of introduction and onboarding. So I think that's a cool example of how, um, yeah, how, how online communities can kind of structure things in a way to provide more um, productive uh, interactions and then possibly things like forgiveness. Do you think that, um, you know, thinking about those uh, dispute resolution pieces, you know, are there, uh, you know, thinking about like algorithmic forgiveness or dispute resolution on the internet, are there ways that kind of code itself can forgive or how do how you think about code and algorithms with respect to forgiveness? Well, I think um, it's very hard to think about um, actually coding forgiveness if it means letting go of an existing protocol, right? Because the protocol is there wired in. You could develop a branching tree that says, oh, but you could have an exception under the following circumstances, but then that's a further element of the code rather than forgiveness itself. Um, I think that humans in the loop are going to be necessary for forgiveness, at least the way that I have understood it. But I think that that's a really important point in general, um, finding ways to keep humans in the loop um, and to escalate problems so that they um, can actually encounter um, the consideration of forgiveness in one circumstance or another. You know, the exploding use of risk scores uh, in settings ranging from applications for credit or insurance all the way to deciding um, when the state should remove a child from the custody of a parent um, is an example where relying entirely on algorithms is really worrisome, particularly because the algorithms, of course, if they're using machine learning, are drawing on past experience and data that are not uh, unbiased, that reflect the human biases. And unfortunately, those uh, biases can get perfected if the machine learning is left uh, on its own. Um, I think that we can't ignore the larger context within which code is written. So if it's written in order to maximize viewer engagement, user engagement, as is true for many of the social media platforms, uh, it's not the code's fault uh, that it uh, escalates the most outrageous. Um, that's what actually maximizes engagement. Um, and if you have a, a, a financing system that depends on eyeballs and time on site, then that's what you're going to reward. Um, maybe we have to come up with some other kinds of rewards and contexts for the, the assignment in designing the code. Yeah, 100%. We need kind of a pluralistic view of what is valuable on the internet instead of just something like time on site. And I, I think that what you're saying about humans in the loop is is true and interesting. I think there's, you know, it's using these AI systems as a, instead of using them as a crystal ball um, and saying, oh, you were, um, you know, in poverty, you know, from the start. And so therefore you are more likely to be, to um, have a high recidivism rate. Okay. We're going to keep you in jail. Instead, use it as a mirror on society and say, wait a second, why is it the case that poverty um, leads to higher recidivism rates? Um, and similarly, it's funny because like, both this example with code and the example earlier with mandatory minimums are attempts perhaps to 
well, some of them are attempts to just kind of uh, decrease the friction and make things, quote unquote, more efficient um, or cheap for people to do. And they're also ways to, in theory, remove some of the human bias from these things. But as we know, the human bias um, is kind of baked into the code or the laws themselves when we try to make them new. So do you think, I mean, you know, kind of zooming well, let me out. say one thing about that. I mean, yeah, I think that was very very well said. I, I'm very intrigued by the possibility of using these tools as mirrors back on society and even back on the players in our in our legal system. I mean, how about using the algorithms to actually uh, look at the judges and their behavior? And are they behaving in a way that is biased and give them feedback? Um, or the police? Um, or the tax uh, uh, collectors? Um, so I think that there are many, many positive uh, uses of these tools diagnostically, and that's quite different than uh, for decisions. Yeah, and like, and that's actually, as you're saying that, I was laughing over here. It's like, oh yeah, we could use these, you know, for the judges, you know, for it's just a classic thing. We're like, we're using them for the people who aren't in power, and in fact, we should be using them as mirrors um, for the people in power. If you have more power, you should have more transparency, and this is a great way to have transparency here. Um, do you think, kind of? You know, zooming out to, to tech ethics more generally, is there anything else that's especially live for you these days within the tech and society um, loop, whether it's, you know, disinformation more generally or Section 230 or antitrust? Is there anything that you're kind of, you know, thinking about or mulling on these days? Well, for sure. I actually have a book coming out in the spring that's called Saving the News, mm -hmm. Why the Constitution Calls for Government Action to Defend the First Amendment. So I'm very much addressing Section 230 uh, antitrust, uh, the incentive structure around social media, and uh, fundamentally the challenge to uh, how to renew a uh, news industry when all of the funding has migrated to uh, social media, or not all, but much of it. Um, so that's been very, very much on my mind. I can say that more generally, um, I have this wonderful opportunity to participate in the development of the College of Computing at MIT. I'm the co-chair of the External Advisory Board. And one thing that I've been thinking a lot about in that context is I see really exciting and promising collaborations across the humanities and social sciences uh, with people who are in computer science. I've been thinking a lot about the need to have some shared vocabulary. You know, maybe we should have um, mass viewings of some classic uh, science fiction and horror movies so that we can, in shorthand, point to the dangers uh, that are already well developed in, uh, in, in great science fiction um, and, and develop better ways to think about it and anticipate it. But one probably more important point that I've been thinking about in that context is too often we talk about tech ethics as if it's interpersonal. It's about individuals. Well, it matters about individuals, individual coders and so forth. But as we've been talking about here, context matters. What's the uh, larger incentive structure? What's the payment model? Um, what are the institutional uh, feedback loops or failure to have feedback loops? And whether it's called ethics or it's called accountability, those dimensions are at least as crucial, if not more crucial than the interpersonal ethics. 100%. I think that there's, and that was a tension for me when I was teaching, when uh, Neha and I were teaching blockchain ethics at MIT, it was like, 
we didn't want to call it blockchain ethics. Um, we wanted to call it something like, you know, socio-technical blockchain systems or something like that um, to get at these ideas of how, what are the incentive structures, what's, what are the laws, code, you know, um, norms and, you know, the, fi the financials, how are institutions, you know, working with individuals here. And I think that I totally agree that we need to, yeah, just I kind of, I guess, think more systemically, think more, you know, based on incentives and things like that around how to change these systems instead of saying, oh, it's like one person at Facebook who, you know, created the like button, who's, who's the person with the issue here. Um, I guess the other note for our listeners is um, to be on the lookout for that, that book, Saving the News, when it comes out in spring of next year. Um, so Martha, we're about at the end of time here, but thank you for chatting about all these things. I think hopefully we will enter a future in which there is, um, there are less wrongs done so that we need less forgiveness and also in which a, we have a society both from a governmental perspective and from a social media perspective and from a law perspective that has forgiveness baked into it in, in a better way. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to, any call to actions for our listeners or anything uh, at the end of the show today? Well, thanks so much for this wonderful conversation. And the call to action uh, is really at two levels, the interpersonal and then the more societal. Interpersonally, I think uh, forgiveness turns out to have great health benefits. Letting go of grievances is associated with better health. And learning to listen and learning to uh, let go of grudges, something worth working on. But uh, beyond the interpersonal, the societal, um, I really do think uh, that this is a time of great resentment. And uh, if we could put on the agenda a much more structural and political attention to what a restart would be in areas where we've gone down a resentful path, um, we would all be better off. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, and fingers crossed that that will be true. Uh, and thanks again for chatting today, Martha. Thank you. Goodbye. Everybody. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Martha. I know I always just enjoy hearing her cogently explain stuff for me. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that this, and I have four quick notes on and reflections on the episode. First is, you know, her notes on treating like with like or the difference that makes a difference. I think that those are simple but clear ways to understand how to apply similar concepts across lots of different contexts. And yeah, she talks about it with law and it just, it makes sense. It's like, look, there are these laws. Does it apply here? Is the like case like this other case? Is Or is the difference one that makes a difference? So I just think that's a, those are simple catchphrases to remember that. Also just a reminder for folks that the difference that makes a difference is a phrase from Gregory Bateson, who's an information theorist and cyberneticist. And he was using that phrase to describe information itself which is a difference that makes a difference, a.k.a. if something is a zero versus a one, well, that difference obviously matters. You know, if you <laughs> zero means you don't have COVID, one means you do have COVID, eep. Um, and, you know, you can also think about it as describing, you know, a state with low information or high entropy, you know, like let's call it the beginning of the universe or whatever, that, you know, or, or a gaseous container or something like that, that 
the difference between all the molecules doesn't make too much of a difference, right? They're kind of replaceable with each other. It's all explainable in terms of fields and probabilities and not in terms of exactness. And so that's another way to kind of think about this difference that makes a difference is if many of the subparticles aren't actually that different, well then there's low, not much information in the system. The second point I want to talk about here is, yeah, I mean, Martha was talking about how studies show from her previous experience in conflict-driven countries with needs to forgiveness that, you know, if you can co-create a future together, that that's a great way to forgive and forget. And I'm reminded of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, which was generally a success, I guess, and that there's, yeah, people, there's a very explicit goal there post-apartheid to be like, look, we got to go get through this. And I think it's interesting because Biden really has a unity message. You know, he's really pushed his unity message. And so it'll be interesting to see whether it's with Biden or with, you know, folks in the UK and Brexit or with Nigeria and, and SARS or stuff like that. If people are people who project a unity message, if that unity message ever gets operationalized in a commission style thing where, yeah, maybe the U.S. should have some kind of truth and reconciliation commission style thing. So that would be interesting. The third thing is, you know, talking about forgiveness on the internet. And I think Martha brings up a good point of dispute resolution with something like eBay and to look to things like that as ways to forgive. And I think the obviously the general question here is like, how can the internet be a place of forgiveness? But, you know, based off my last episode with Eli Pariser, I'm actually coming to the conclusion that that's not the right question. That rather the right question is, how can the internet you know, be a place where people can peacefully coexist. And then maybe in the 1% of cases, it can be a place of forgiveness. But really, we need to focus on developing the social capital, developing the trust and interpersonal trust and peaceful coexistence before we deal with the, oh, specific spots for forgiveness. I think that it is, it's kind of like when you give folks feedback. You should give 99% good feedback and then 1%. People always focus on the 1% of stuff they're doing wrong. But it's like, let's just focus on making it a good foundation first. And then maybe we will have, you know, town hall style things on the internet or jury duty style things on the internet to allow for people to go through forgiveness processes. But we don't, we don't need that yet. We just need peaceful coexistence. And then the fourth and final point here is, you know, Martha and I were chatting about pointing AI at people and you know using it as a crystal ball rather than a mirror and i think she brings up a great point which is just like hey we don't we don't see much of this stuff being used you know being pointed at people in power you know we most see mostly see stuff like recidivism for inmates and using ai to determine that and then keeping them in jail as a result but we don't see it being used as like oh what about you know police officers and and i think that just the more we point AI at people in power, A, the more quote-unquote okay it'll be, <laughs> and B, I think that, yeah, we'll be able like, you know, it'll ask the question of like, okay, this, based off of your statistics, Mr. Police Officer, you are, you know, 3% more likely to shoot an unarmed black man or whatever, therefore we are taking away your gun. I don't know, so like, those things I think will bring up interesting new, uh, debates in new contexts so i'm excited for that great hope you enjoyed this episode with martha and definitely try to come from a pace of empathy and forgiveness as you go walk through the world goodbye